Goliath, we're, we're looking at Goliath. Um, it's one of these funny books, really, that is, or stories that makes its way into a children's uh, Bible. That you sort of think a guy gets his head off, chopped, uh, chopped off, sorry, uh, ISIS style, again, a bit like last week, and yet it's in our uh, children's Bible. And therefore, I think most people, if you did a straw poll on this or uh, some sort of survey, it seems most people are aware of the story, even if they haven't grown up in the church. So it's also a metaphor used in the NRL. If you watch the NRL quite often, a halfback acts as a prop. It is, you know, it's David and Goliath brought up. There's a sense in which that's, uh, that's how this story is meant to... I mean, it's meant to leave an impression. It's an enjoyable story. And we're going to look, of course, as how does it apply to us as Christians? Because apparently if you go and troll the web, you could find an ISIS person chopping someone's head off. But it's not like we try to exegete that and figure out what does that mean for us today? But this story comes to us as part of the canon of Scripture and, and we need to take a little bit of a look. So one way of thinking about this story, I'm not going to reread. I'll reread a tiny part of what Nige just looked at then. But for most of it, I want to just retell the story and then come back and look at what it's going to look like. Let me just fix up this dice here. People listening on the web are going to wonder what I was just doing then, but I've just uh, corrected the height of my uh, lectern. <laughs> Some people have heard me compare uh, certain church contexts to Monty Python skits because occasionally they do make you think of those sort of casts, you know. Um, and if you're worried about that or offended, that means you probably shouldn't be worried. But there's a sense in which Monty Python could have done a great job with the Goliath story. You can almost imagine it. There, on one side of a valley, we're presented with Israel, with their little scraggy beards and apocalyptic blue eyes just staring across <laughs> the other side, some naked man in a hole just next to him for some reason, gibbering <laughs> on about something, okay? On the other side, you've got these big, oafy sort of Philistines, and they're sort of looking at them, right? And, and they're the, so it's about to play out. Would have been a wonderful scene for a Monty Python skit or movie. But that's not our main focus in this story. The main focus for the opening verses of this story come in verse 4 with this bloke called Goliath, who sounds like a large person. But if you read verse 4, literally, it says, and there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion. It's literally... A, an in-between man is what it is in the Hebrew, which sounds very odd to us. But an in-between man is the man who's left standing in, at the end of the battle, okay? All the dust settles, the bodies are around, and there's one guy left standing. That is Goliath. He is the in-between man. So you can see where they get the champion from, but, but that's what it's about here. Um, we've got this fellow Goliath and the place where he's from. I mean, he is a large man. He's at least nearly seven foot, but there are issues around the, exactly what it means, his height. But the fact that the place name where he comes from is where there are so-called giants somewhere else in the Old Testament suggests that this guy is almost of mythical proportions and scariness for these uh, our Monty Python cast over there on the Israelite side with the naked man in the hole. They're just watching, thinking, what is going to happen? And then we pick it up when he starts speaking in verse 8. This is what seems important here, uh, what the person who's written this has done with it. He says, Goliath, verse 8, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine 
And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and we, that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid and the naked man gave a squeal or something like that, okay? Now, for someone who is a sensitive reader of Samuel, they are sort of enjoying what they read right at the end there. This word, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And they're enjoying it because of the context. There's a context, there's a, there's a tall man here. Something has happened in Samuel already. But now this is very satisfying to read this. This is like, I'm reading through an author at the moment called Graham Greene. In English, you've probably never heard of him but easy to pick up cheap books in second-hand bookshops if you're into this sort of thing. But Graham Greene seems like a master when he's writing. He can drop just a little observation where someone has been at a hotel as they leave, a guy called Wilson, who you'll hardly even know about, for example, walks past and he notices him walk past. But he had nothing to do with that part of the story. But you know that why would he have written there if he didn't have some significance for later? And 100 pages later... All of a sudden, Wilson brings up, hey, I saw you that time coming out of the hotel, and all of a sudden, everything just implodes in this person's life, okay, and you sort of enjoy what's happened. Here, a, a sensitive reader of 1 Samuel has remembered that Hannah sung a song. You remember Hannah's song in chapter 2? The mother of Samuel sings a song where she's celebrating that she's going to have a son, and it seems as though Hannah is someone who sees very clearly in the book. So remember, we're talking about Impaired vision is a consistent theme. Eli can't see very well. Neither could Samuel in chapter 16 last week as we looked at. But Hannah seems to see very well. In verse 3, this is my translation, a very literal translation of her song where she's rejoicing about having a child because it seems to be a very significant child for the life of Israel. She says, verse 3, Do not make much your boasting... O tall one, O tall one. Okay? That's literally what she says. Not O great one, O great one. It's O tall one, O tall one. And we know they're going to be tall people. Saul's tall. Eliab is tall, the older brother of David. And this great thumping big Philistine is very tall. She also says in verse 10, The Lord, his adversaries, shall be dismayed. Okay? The same verb, as we've just read, of the Israelites. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. That verb only occurs two times in the whole of Samuel, and it's in those two places, both in the context of a tall man, or reference to a tall man. And so you can see that with the, re the reader who's familiar with this is sitting there thinking, right, there's going to be a reversal of things here. We've got a tall man boasting who should be a little, practice a little more caution about boasting from what we know of Hannah's words because we suspect all of a sudden his side's going to be dismayed in front of God's king. So that's how we're, uh, we're, we're, we're introduced to this, to expect that God's about to turn something around and that's only at this point that David is introduced to us in the story. And notice he is reintroduced. Because we've noticed he is hard to see. Last week we were saying people can't see God's chosen. So he has to be reintroduced in only 12 verses after we've had two stories about David. 
he's reintroduced to us. I'm not going to read those verses just to say that he, he's a bit of a nothing in the story at this time. He's a shepherd boy. His dad's sending him with a bit of bread to give to his oldest three brothers who are there at the battle. He's taking a look around, but no one can really see him. So that, that's where we're at. We've got David turns up, and the first we really hear of him having any significance in the story is that he hears David. Okay, Sorry, he hears Goliath, if you pick it up from verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, just to recap in case you've forgotten. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage. If you're a careful reader of Samuel, you'll know that Saul was once found hiding in the baggage. David's left that with someone else to look after. Ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the man, the in-between man, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So we've now got David reintroduced and, uh, and it's not until he asks the question in response to hearing this Goliath that it's, it's not until he asks the question that he'll be noticed. And his question is going to come in verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, this question will be important for us later, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that's personal, that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Um, at this point, we've got Hannah's song ringing in our ears, right? We're expecting this boasting tall one is going to be turned upside down and the Philistines will be dismayed. That's where it's happened. Verse 31 Saul, his, Saul finds out about David. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, because we're going to come back to his older brother right at the end of this talk, which happens in verses 28 to 30. If I keep referring to verses, it's because I want to give the impression that the talk I'm giving is emerging from the text in conversation with others who've, who've looked at the text. I think that's very important when we preach to keep people realising we're anchoring what we're doing in this and we're expounding this for people to hear. It's a good practice. Um, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for them. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Here's the little boy, right? Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you're just a boy and he's been a warrior from his youth. Again, for those of us familiar with the book, this is what we'd expect. Saul is finding it very difficult to see God's chosen, his chosen king. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the beard, not, not his jaw, literally the beard. Bears don't tend to have beards. You can imagine a lion does. 
but it could be almost a reference, hey, and I can get this bearded one as well by his. Strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Now we're going to come back for a moment and, and look at this changing, or, or what, what we talk about as uh, a scene of, to do with David's clothing. But of course, Saul says, you can go. And he says, and here's all my armour. And then it famously doesn't fit. David says, well, actually, I'd prefer my staff and my slingshot. People talk a lot about that too. Personally, if I was in David's situation, I'd be hesitant to change my weaponry at the last moment just like this. Happened to me once when I was, uh, I made regionals for discus from Bega High School. And at Bega High School, it was just, the, the method was you grab the disc and, it's, and it was one, two, and you just hurl it as far as you could. And I got to these regionals up near Sydney or mid-coast and uh, there were all these guys doing these fancy pirouette things and flying round and round and round. So I thought, last minute, I'm going to have a go at that. And I threw the discus <laughs> right into the parents behind me. <laughs> disqualified. Very, you've got to be very careful changing. So it's possibly David has something like this. He doesn't want to seize up in the field of action not having used a sword like, like this before. So we'll, we'll come back to that because now comes the famous encounter in verses 41 to 47. If you're a bit sensitive, this, this might be, uh, you know, We'll, we'll see how you go with it. The Philistine came on and, uh, and drew near to David. This is where they're about to fight. With his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Notice when... Da this is important too. So when, when Goliath looks at David, it's not the verb to see. Remember last week, Samuel doesn't look at Eliab when he looks on the outside. The verb is to gaze. Here, Goliath struggles to see as well. He's not seeing the chosenness of David. He is gazing upon David and all he sees is a little boy and it's an insult to him. Um, the Philistine said to David in verse 44, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, that is of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you down and cut off your head and I'll give the dead bodies of the Philistine armies this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will, give you into, he will give you into our hand. We've got Hannah's song again just ringing in our ears. And so they draw near to each other. David's picked up five stones. Who knows why? Probably because he's not sure he'll crack him in the skull on the first. But by the end, as uh, Keith Bodner's commentary says, I love Keith Bodner's commentary on 1 Samuel. He says, whoever has written this story has wordsmith well, presents Goliath as something of a wordsmith. His rhetoric, everything's quite, you know, you're listening to him. He's got a beautiful mind, he says. But at this point of the story, he's got something else in his mind. He's got David's stone. So David runs forward, 
throws a stone, bang, killing him. Verse 50, there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him. Then he cut his head off. Okay, what's significant is verse 54, and then we're going to look at application here. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armour in his tent. Now, if, if I, it's got to be symbolic that he's taken the head of the, Philibi, the, the Philistine to Jerusalem, because most of us, if we found ourselves in the possession of a human head, we'd sort of ditch it somewhere or get rid of it very quickly. But he's carrying it to Jerusalem. That's, that's going to be important. So then we've got to ask them, what do we do with this, with this story? Uh, we all know it, or most of us would know it from, as children. Um, we just had a look at it then. So, so, so what are the points that it makes for us? How do we apply this? And I want to suggest there are two points that come from this, both what I would say call salvation historical. They're both going to give us a background to Christ, ultimately. Not every text, I think, in the Old Testament has something that we would apply. This is how we're going to modify the way we live today. A lot of it, as I've said before, can be like the, the Old Testament, can serve as almost those pre-teen years of a boy in your family. You birth him as an adolescent, there's going to be trouble. I mean, mine is criticising my nose, tells me how big my nose is, my widow's peak, that I'm looking old, uh, that he can beat me in a fight, all this sort of stuff, right? Now, why should I even tolerate him in my home? Well, it's because I've had him since a child and I love him. And he actually does those things in an endearing way anyway. But, but it's important to get that background to understand him. And it's texts like these that help us understand the work of Christ that put a bit of thickness in our picture of him rather than just this paper-thin character we may read about sometime in the, sometimes in the Gospels. Not these paper-thin there, uh, but this gives some depth. The first point if you said the overarching point, the main point of the story is about succession. It's about the succession of kings. And the way I want to deal with this is to step backwards through the text to apply this point. Because if the text does this itself, it gives us a flashback about succession in verses 55 to 58. Because notice it says, when Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, it's taking us back to something that's already happened. He said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. The king said, inquire whose son the stripling is. I love that. Who calls anyone a stripling? Um, Sometimes the NRSV really annoys me just with its uh, terminology it uses. On David's return from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, you've got to be careful here because you can, we have been talking about how it's difficult to see God's chosen one. And you might start thinking, Saul's an idiot. He doesn't even see David, who's been playing the harp for him just recently and probably at the battlefield. Um, But he's not talking about seeing David here. He's talking about, Whose son is he? He's trying to understand where did he come from? And in the Old Testament, questions like that are about kingship. Where did you come from? He's trying to work out, are you a a threat? Are you a successor? And it's only us as the reader, because I don't think Jesse the Bethlehemite means much to Saul, but it means something to us. 
we've got to be careful and make sure that we see David here. And the narrator is alerting us to the fact that this is the successor to Saul. So on one level, this is very important, just for the whole book of 1 Samuel, but even the whole form of prophets to, to remain together. How did we have a succession of kingship from Dave, uh, Saul to David? We also get this, I mean, but this, I think what's more profound here is that you've got something happening with Goliath's head. Um, you've got David standing there in front of Saul with Goliath's head, and we know he's about to take that head to Jerusalem, whereas Saul is about to get his head chopped off by Philistines in another few chapters, you see. So there's a sense in which that succession is looking forward now to David as the, the first king in Jerusalem. But the story itself wants to unpack something about the nature of chosen kingness uh, by contrasting it with Saul, you remember Saul is a king like the other nations. Israel said, give us a king like the other nations. And that's why I want to take us back to the clothing thing that happened. So we're going to keep stepping back through the text. If you look at verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armour. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David tries to put all this stuff on and finally he says, I can't walk with these for I'm not used to them. So he removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones and so on. Uh, Hamlet, which is actually not Hamlet himself, but Shakespeare writing as Hamlet, says, the clothes proclaimeth the man. There's this famous line in Hamlet. There's a sense in which that was true. I think in the ancient world they thought like that as well. Because there's a sense in which David is refusing the clothing, not just because it didn't fit. Although maybe it was, it didn't fit, but it didn't fit for what it symbolised. So... The clothing Saul tries to put on David is the clothing of the king like any other nations. It's militarily important or it's, uh, it's all about violence and, and, uh, and overcoming opposition using war and swords and battles. So it's significant, the clothing that David chooses. We only hear about the staff and the slingshot, but it sounds as though he looks like a shepherd. And so what this story is trying to say is, yes, there's been a succession between Saul, a king like the nations, and David, God's chosen king. But the succession is from a king like the nations to a shepherd king. Do you see what I mean? That with a shepherd, there's David at the start of the story. He looks after sheep on behalf of a master, his father, Jesse. By the end of the story, he'll never go and look after sheep again. Well, not those kind of sheep. He's going to look after God's people for his master, God. You see what I mean? It's presenting us with this shepherd. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. Because there's another point that this story is going to tell us. There's another take-home here. One, that the nature of God's chosen king will be a shepherd who saves, looks after his people, uh, and so on, and that he promises that we'll have that. On the other hand... It indicates that David is not going to be the final shepherd. He's, there's something wrong with David in this story. Verse 28, so we're stepping backwards, and this is the last text we hid in this story. There's this scene where he runs into his oldest brother, Eliab, who we met in chapter 16, the tall one. 
His eldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the men when he's saying, what will I get for this? Because you remember, they say, well, you, you, you'll get a bit of loot and you'll get the, the wife of Saul, you get all this sort of stuff, right? His eldest brother Eliab heard him talking to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. He said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down just to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? It was only a question. And he turned away and started talking to other people. Do you remember in chapter 16, God says, you look on the outside appearance, but I look at the heart. Now here is Eliab, for some reason, says he can see David's heart. And you think, well, Eliab's a brother. And it seems as though he does know something about David as his brother. And what he knows is possibly what David has just alluded to in his question. What do you get from doing this? There's a sense in which there's something already possibly a little corrupt about his heart. Now, Paul Jones may say in question time, doing a bit of gap filling there, Lee. Okay, he's already thinking that way, Lee. But here's, here's how I'd back up, that this text is already anticipating the problem with this shepherd king <laughs> called David is that there's a whole cluster of words there, everything from kindled, anger, sheep, only, just. There are a whole lot of words that are used, probably about eight words here, that are clustered again in another significant text in 2 Samuel 11:12. Now, if you know your Bibles well enough, that's where David commits adultery with Bathsheba and it's the great downfall of his career as the king, right? And clusters like that are important. I went to a Van Gogh, uh, 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 an art gallery that, that had a uh, special feature with Van Gogh and his relationship with, I think it's called Japan, Japan, Japanese or something like that, that, that uh, Japanese art was very popular in, in French. So I'm trying to sound a bit French on the Japan. I think it's called Japan. Who's the artist here that can tell us this? Well, it wasn't just Japanese, I know, Japan. Oh, Japanese. So, thank you, Libby. I almost attacked you with that uh, <laughs> repart. Yeah. So, so, um, so I thought, what, is, what has Van Gogh got to do with Japanese artwork? So I walk into this art gallery, and then, sure enough, it turns out there was this period where he was extremely interested in Japanese artwork. And they show all these Van Goghs that you and I would stand in front of and say, that's a beautiful Van Gogh, but they'll put it next to a, a, a painting with some chopsticks coming out of a bowl, and then you realise the carts in the picture all have exactly the same sort of, just like chopsticks. And you realise he's put all these things in there to say, hey, you've got to read this through the lens of Japanese artwork, right? That's what happens here. So when you get to 2 Samuel 11, 12, you're thinking there'll be enough words clustered there. They're saying, just remember, we said there's a problem with this shepherd's heart and a shepherd shouldn't do this with his sheep, of whom Bathsheba is one. And so there's a problem here. And in that sense, our story anticipates not just that we need a shepherd king, God's chosen king, but that it's going to have to be someone who has something more to him than David. It's got to be a good shepherd. And that's where I'd take you to is John 10, 11. So the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's where this text, I'd say, is pointing. 
uh, in that way is it, it reminds us that the gospel is about that we have a good shepherd who's laid down his life for his sheep. But I want to address what I think is a poor reading or poor application of Goliath, just in finishing. And there's someone here who raised this, that, that this person had seen it, genderless, genderless, right? Uh, this, this application of Goliath by a famous, uh, uh, I think, preacher uh, yesterday. And that was, everyone has a Goliath in their life, you know? So the story, the application of our story is, you've all got your Goliaths that you can overcome as David overcame his Goliath. I'd suggest, if you want to check whether that is a valid application of the text, put yourself in that Monty Python cast, right? who are standing on the side of the battle watching the in-between man, they're all shivering. You say, so would this be a bit like mortgage stress? Or would this be just a bit like, you know, my, my problem with my kids at the moment or my struggling child at school? Or would this one, would this be a little bit like my battle with weight loss at the moment? And I think those apocalyptic eyes would turn on you and start nearly choking you. So don't you get how serious this is? This is, this guy here stands between life and death for us. So to apply Goliath in a way that he's just your problems that need to be overcome is actually to trivialise the gospel. Because it's to finally say, hey, like standing between my family and your family and you and life, eternal life, is the in-between man par excellence, right? Death. It's going to take the battle of Armageddon to overcome it. It's not about just our individual little problems. This story announces good news of the good shepherd who lays down his life so that we may have eternal life. Um, sometimes we need to be reminded of that. When I say standing between my family and eternal life, that is a question that comes up as kids grow up as they start asking, well, well what happens next? What's, how do I overcome this problem? Well, we've got a shepherd king in the Lord Jesus. And I thought I would just finish. Um, if you've got your Bibles there, I'm, I'm going to finish by reading Psalm 23. Psalm 23, and it's written as a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. And even David there, the shepherd king, is anticipating his need for a greater shepherd.